0: This is the What Now podcast.
1: So, you know, we talk about it as a faith crisis, but as, as much as anything, it's a trust crisis. It's, it's a loss of trust in the institution and in its leaders and in, in, in its teachers. And, you know, some people are able to, to kind of reconcile in that and manage that. Uh, for other people, it, it, it really, you know, things start to fall apart and, and, and they just lose that, that faith and trust that, that they once had.
0: This is the What Now podcast where we discuss the culture and beliefs in The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in an honest and faithful way in an effort to encourage, uplift, and inspire. I am Mary Alice Hatch, your host. Join me as I speak with Patrick Mason, author of the book Planted, as he shares how to strengthen and support loved ones on their faith journey even when we don't have all the answers, as well as productive advice for those who are facing doubts. Patrick also talks about how we can commune with God, even when we don't feel that he is communicating with us in the ways that we hope or expect. Today, I'm here with Patrick Mason, author of the book Planted. Welcome.
1: Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks, Mary Alice.
0: Thanks for taking the time. I read your book. I loved it. And after I read it, I thought, I need to interview him about this.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks.
0: So before we begin, i just like to invite you to share a little bit about yourself so our listeners can get to know you better.
1: Yeah, sure. So I am born and raised in, in Utah, and uh, my, uh, most of my professional life, I lived out, outside of Utah, but, but I moved back here and I work at Utah State University now. I'm a professor of religious studies and history and uh, absolutely love it here. And I'm married and we've got four kids and uh, life is good. I, I, my day job is pretty much as a, as a historian uh, and as a religious studies professor, um, but I'm also an active member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so, so I've written some books that are more oriented towards church members as opposed to my other academic books, which very few people read. Uh, and so, uh, so th- those are more written for other scholars. Uh, so, so I have kind of two audiences, both the academic audience and then a more popular uh, church audience.
0: Terrific. Well, um, I'd like to just ask you what motivated you to write the book, Planet? I mean, what were you hoping to accomplish by writing that book?
1: Yeah. So it's it's a book that, that wrestles with questions uh, around what a lot of people call faith crisis or, or doubt and people wrestling uh, with different aspects of, of church history and doctrine. And uh, for me, it, it started about a decade ago. I was doing a lot of firesides uh, in which wards and stakes or just private groups would ask me to come and, and talk about various issues with church history just based on my my training as a historian. and And every single time I did one of these firesides, uh, we'd always do Q A at the end and, and people would just say, like, hey, where can I read more? Where can I get more? And And sometimes it's hard to to remember, but but a decade ago, Uh, in the early 2010s, there were very few resources uh, for people you know, for Latter day Saints who were going through a faith crisis, especially things from the church or from Deseret Book. Um, and and so I always had to say, like, oh, uh, sorry. That, you know, I, I wasn't quite sure what the, to point them to. Uh, Terrell and Fiona Givens had just published a book called Crucible of Doubt, which is terrific. It was really kind of the first book uh, um, uh, in Latter day Saint circles to, to really grapple with these kinds of things. But there wasn't much to point people to. So I'll, I'll just never forget. I, I was, um, uh as at one of these firesides and and this this one woman asked me that same question that i would gotten multiple times, you know, hey, where can I read more or when are you going to write more about this? And and I just felt like convicted that, OK, I guess I'm going to do this now. I mean, I, I couldn't put it off anymore. And so it really just generated out of the questions and the conversations that I had with lots of people, both who were struggling with, with their faith, with, with questions and with doubts, but then also with the people who loved them, people who had a spouse or had children um, who were going through those kinds of things and maybe didn't fully understand what, what they were going through. So, so when I sat down to write the book, it was really to both of those audiences at the same time.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, how does your book help someone who is struggling as well as someone who is solid in their faith? You know, this book is an important tool.
1: Well, thanks. And that's what I hoped it would be. I, I really thought about it as a tool. It's it's not a book that goes through and like gives the answer to every question that somebody might have. Uh, instead, I really thought of it as, as a kind of framework that might help somebody think through. Difficult and challenging questions in in another way, in in, in ways that, that you can reconcile, or at least I have have reconciled uh, my commitments as a Latter Day Saint, my the faith that I have, the the testimony that I have, with uh, my historical training and all the historical knowledge that I have, and and so I just try to offer some readers uh, some tools or some frameworks. Um, To I guess a a kind of pair of lenses to be able to to do that kind of reconciling work, Um, but I also wanted to be really honest and to to acknowledge that hey these these struggles these doubts these questions they're they're totally real they're totally valid Um, they're they're not made up they're they're not manufactured Uh, that there are real questions that uh, that are worth struggling with and um, worth you know working through and uh, I think you can do that through a context of faith and come out on the other side with your faith strengthened strength, certainly that's been the case for me um but and so so it was it was as much as anything just just trying to help people through that and like I said at, at the same time for for people who maybe aren't experiencing those those same kinds of doubts and struggles I guarantee you that they know somebody who is whether it's in their family or in their ward or friends or something like that so I wanted to kind of invite them into that journey as well and say okay maybe here are some tools and frameworks so you can understand what these people you love are, are going through.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, make it a little more relatable for those who really are believing and they're trying to understand where their loved ones are coming from. Yeah. Yeah, that's a tricky one. You know, we're, today we're seeing just an increasing number of people leaving the church. I mean, your book, you referenced two groups, those who have been switched off and those who have been squeezed out. So can you elaborate on those two groups, you know, and what they may be experiencing?
1: Yeah. And, and, and these are terms that I got from Richard Bushman, the, the great Latter-day Saint historian. And, and so the switched off, um, and, and of course, these are big, broad categories. Everybody's experience is, is different. It's personal. Um, so anytime we generalize, obviously, we're, we're going to miss the particularities of, of each person's experience. But, but if we think about these as kind of two umbrella categories uh, that certainly don't don't capture everything, switched off, refers to people who, at, at some point, were switched on. Uh, so, so, so these are people who uh, have been fully active in the church, uh, whether they were raised in the church, or whether they were converts, uh, that doesn't really matter, but but fully committed to the church. Oftentimes, they've served missions, they've been endowed in the temple, oftentimes been sealed in the temple, they've held church callings, um, oftentimes leadership callings. I mean, these are people who are like all in. And then at some point, uh, something happens. They discover some some fact they s- discover some aspect uh, of, of church history, something that they hadn 't heard before and and they might be inclined at first to just dismiss it and say oh this this just like an anti-mormon rumor or a lie or something like that that the people just made up but the, you know the, the amazing thing is we live in this this age of information where all of this information is just at our fingertips or you know in our pockets and the, these phones we're carrying around and so it doesn't take much to start to do some research on these things and and and, and so people kind of go down that hole and realize that thing that they'd never heard it actually wasn't a lie. It actually, there's something to it. Actually, there's, there's there's something very real. It's it's truthful. It's it's factual, and and it's usually not the fact itself. Uh, that is most troubling to them. What What's really bothersome is the fact that nobody ever told them this. You know, the, the the conversation in their head or that they might have with people is something like, you know, I've been in this church for decades. I served a mission. I've done all this. I went to institute. I went to seminary and and nobody ever told me this. Nobody ever talked about this. And there's a sense of, of betrayal, a sense like, uh, hey, if they didn't tell me this, what else are they not telling me? And so so, you know, we talk about it as a faith crisis, but as, as much as anything, it's a trust crisis. It's, it's a loss of trust in the institution and in its leaders and in, in, in its teachers. And, and so for, you know, some people are able to, to kind of reconcile that and manage that. For other people, it, it, it really, you know, things start to fall apart and, and, and they just lose that, that faith and trust that, that they once had. And, and so, you know, people who are once switched on uh, become switched off. Um, for for the second category squeezed squeezed out here I'm thinking more about people who who feel like um, they just don't fit within the church. Oftentimes these are maybe less around kind of historical issues and more around cultural issues, maybe doctrinal issues. People who feel like um, that because of their experience, who they are um, you know, that they just don't fit within the culture. And, and this, this can happen in lots of different ways. I, I think uh, it can happen around gender issues. Sometimes singles, uh, feel this way. People who are, you know, racial minorities or sexual minorities, um, uh, with, within the church sometimes just wonder, is there a place for me? And, and they just feel, uh, again, squeezed out like that. There's just not a place for them. And and they wonder if, if this is still a church that they can participate in.
0: Yeah, that's tricky. I really like what you're talking about in the switched off category where they feel like it becomes more of a trust issue. Like, yeah. wait a second. I never heard about any of this. Why didn't anyone even tell me about this? You know, and then it feels like you're kind of they're hiding something, you know and so and that's what i find in this younger generation who start discovering these things cuz the internet is out there and they can get access to anything and that's that's a tricky one cuz you're like you were saying some of these things really did happen in our church history and how do they reconcile that
1: right and it's you know it's one thing for a for a 19 year old to say that you know part of that response can be like, well, you've only been around for 19 years, right? And 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 maybe it was brought up in a seminary lesson, and that was the day you were asleep. Um, uh, but it's, it's it's not that not that we shouldn't take those, those concerns seriously, but it, but it's a little bit different for a 19 year old than say for a 49 year old, right? Or a 59 year old. Somebody and 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 this is. A lot of the people I talk to, these are, um, you know, th- these are middle aged people who have spent decades in service to the church. So, so for them, it really is like, hey, I have put in the time I've I've I, I taught those lessons. I taught gospel doctrine um i taught early morning seminary and and still i i didn't know these kinds of things um, so it it can be equally serious for for young or old but um but but i find it's oftentimes you know those people who have been in the church a long time who feel an even greater sense of of betrayal
0: yeah i mean i do like that the church is becoming more transparent yeah right? I mean, they're they're releasing things now, the Joseph Smith papers and a lot of other things where they're being very honest and very open and trying to not seem like they're hiding anything, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, a ton has changed just in the past few years. So like I said, I I started doing this kind of work and giving these firesides, you know, in 2012, 2013, and and there really wasn't much there. But it was that very year, is 2013, that the church started to publish its Gospel Topics essays, uh, which go through about a dozen or so of the most controversial issues or challenging issues in, in church history. Uh, they're fantastic. They're honest. They're based on really good scholarship. Uh, obviously, there's there's more that can be said on any of those things. The essays are relatively short, but but I was really pleased to see how transparent they were. Like you said, the Joseph Smith Papers Project, uh, the book that, about the Mountain Meadows Massacre the, the, that was published by church historians, now the New Saints uh, uh, books, which which are based on really good history. And so we've just seen so much improvement in this regard over the past decade and a half. Um, and so, so that's why today when I talk to people that, you know, it's, 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 it can be hard to remember what it was like in the early 2010s when none of these resources or very few of these sources existed. Even today, a lot of people aren't aware of these resources. So, so I think it's, it's, there's a matter of like sharing with people what is out there so they can see actually, you know, the, the, the church is doing a much better job at opening up about its history. It's still not perfect. We still have a long ways to go. Um, you know, we got to make sure the water gets the, to the end of the row. Um, but uh, but but the resources are there now in a way that they simply weren't a decade ago.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's true. And how can they use those resources to their advantage to not let it shake their testimony?
1: Yeah, that's such a good question because I think in, and I've talked with my friends in, in the church history department about this. I mean, they've put out so many good resources, but you know the, the history doesn't interpret itself. The, you know, so, so the fact that, that you simply now have more knowledge about what happened in the past, that's great. And, and that does fend off the claim, like, why didn't they tell me this? Uh, or why didn't they provide me with this set of facts? So, so I think we're getting much better there. But, but the, the next step that has to be taken, and oftentimes it has to be taken on an individual level, is now that I have these new facts, now that I have this new information, what does it mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do I incorporate this now in my own testimony, in my own life of faith, and my relationship with God? Because now this new information is going to change the way I think about church history. It, it changes some of the things I thought I knew about Joseph Smith. It changes some of the things I thought I knew about, about other presidents of the church and other leaders of the church, um, or some of the scriptures that we have. And so it requires us uh, to you know, to do a little bit of thinking and and maybe a lot of praying and and a lot of wrestling to come up with. So it's you know, history is one thing, but theology is another, and and we have to to think about how do I incorporate these things into into my theology, into my understanding of the way that God works in the world.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it is tricky because, like you were saying, yes, they're being more transparent and more of this information is coming out. And some of it is disturbing. They're like, okay, great. You're telling me all of this, but now how do I process this? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think that really is the next step. I, I think this is, so the past decade has been great for historical transparency. I think now we're at the point where we need to do more work together uh, as a church on the theological meanings the religious meanings of all that history. Okay, so now we you know we have a pretty good idea of what happened now and the facts on each of these things. But but now how should I think differently about these things? So again, some of the a lot of this can be done on an individual level, but but we shouldn't just leave individuals on their own devices, right? I mean, this some of these things are hard and so I think the more that we can talk about these things together, um, sometimes it'll be, you know, the 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 church providing actual resources, but a lot of times it's gonna be in conversations we have in seminary, in institute, in relief societies, in elders' quorums, or around the dinner table uh, with our families, um, for us to really kind of work out what this means. So, you know, I always tell people, you know, we we don't argue with the facts. So, so let's take these historical facts as a given now, and then let's wrestle with it. And for me, what it comes down to, and uh, where where I've really found a lot of peace and uh, and a, a lot of confidence over the past several years, as I've wrestled with these things, is to remember that ultimately this is the Church of Jesus Christ, not the Church of Joseph Smith or the Church of Brigham Young or the Church of Russell Nelson, uh, that it's the Church of Jesus Christ and and I believe, and the scriptures attest to, to this over and over again that God can redeem all things. God can redeem the sins and mistakes and transgressions of his people. Jesus Christ was sent into the world precisely because we mess things up over and over and over again. So when I look at church history, I don't expect to see a record of perfection. I expect to see a record of people who are doing their best and honestly striving with God, falling short over and over and over again. And that's precisely why God sent Jesus into the world.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's the tricky thing, like how can we support the ones we love when we don't have all the answers? Yeah, and sometimes people ask me things, and I'm like, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that
1: <laughs> and 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 that's actually a good, honest answer. Um, you know uh, president ballard he, he gave a talk to um, some seminary and institute teachers a few years ago, uh, probably five years ago, uh, something like that and and he said, uh, you know, gone are the days when uh, when students would come up to us and ask us a question and we would simply bear our testimony to them or even like give them bad answers, <laughs> right? He says, we, we have a responsibility to, uh, again, he was speaking to seminary and institute teachers, we have a responsibility to, to go find the answers with them um and not just kind of pat them on the head and send them away but say hey that that question is worth answering i'm I'm gonna i'm gonna you know work on this with you uh now we're not all seminary and institute teachers but we are all, you know, in this together uh, as parents, we're teachers, as primary teachers, we're teachers, as youth leaders, we're teachers, Relief Society presidents are teachers. And so so we're all in, in the gospel teaching business. Now, it doesn't mean we all have to be expert. It doesn't mean we all have to go get a Ph.D. in church history. Um, but again, the church now has provided so many of these resources and, and they're easy to find now. That You can find them on the, the church's webpage under Church History. You can find them in the app, uh, the Gospel Library app under Church History. They have so many resources there. Um, Not just the Gospel Topics essays, but all kinds of resources to answer all kinds of questions about these difficult issues. So, So again, we're just in a very different place than we were a decade ago when it was hard to know where to go. Well, now we can just go to the Gospel Library app and get a lot of the information we need.
0: Yeah, I love how the church is really embracing the opportunity for people to search and discover on their own. I felt like, you know, when I was growing up, maybe I'm fifty three years old. So mm-hmm. back then, if you were doubting and questioning, they're like, "Where's your faith?" Like, right. you just kind of swept away in a faith like answer. I'm like, "Well, I don't understand this. Can you explain this to me?" Well, you just need to have faith in right. Go, know? go,
1: go! Read your scriptures and pray yeah. more. Right? <laughs> no.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah i like how do we strengthen support people on their faith journey without kind of diminishing their their questions
1: yeah and 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 to be clear reading your scriptures and praying it are those are really good ideas right <laughs> nobody nobody should stop doing those things but so they're they're necessary but they're not always sufficient um and and so that's why you know when 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 somebody loses their job or or when somebody gets really sick, uh, we don't just say go read your scriptures and pray, right? We we say okay, what's the actual issue here? And and I'm going to meet this person where they are, and I'm actually going to address the issues, whatever those are, to the best of my ability. Uh, uh, And the the same thing is is true when when people have questions about church history and doctrine for. For, for many people, you know, whether they're in the switched off category or squeezed out category, th- they didn't invite this. They didn't want it. Um, again, these are people who who have spent years, oftentimes decades, uh, in faithful service within the church. And so this oftentimes blindsides them. And for many of them, it is the most severe trial that they've ever gone through, especially spiritual trial. And so, so again, it's... A lot. Of, this is where the rubber hits the road in terms of our ministry. We, we're talking a lot in the church now about ministering to one another. Well, this this is one of the most inform, important forms of ministry that we have today. Recognizing how many of our friends and family and ward members are struggling in these ways, um, rather than dismissing it or rather than than casting judgment on them or thinking that that somehow that it's just because they they have a lack of faith or they've they've done something wrong. To, to recognize that oftentimes these, these kinds of struggles and doubts come unbidden and unwanted. Uh, and, and so it calls for our ministry, our compassion, our love, our walking with them in friendship and in love, regardless of where they end up. That's the other thing is we can't control people. We can't control where they're going to end up. Some some people are, are going to find a way to reconcile and stay within the church and their faith will be strengthened. Some of the people we love are, are going to make other choices and and maybe choose to step away from the church. But part of the test of our ministry and our discipleship is, is do we maintain love and relationship with them regardless of the choices they, they end up making?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that can be really hard for some of the older parents out there that are just like, I feel like we're in the generation O, like generation obedience. We just did it. I didn't question much. I just kind of went to church. I just did the program. You know what I mean? I went to BYU. I got married in the Mm -hmm. temple. I I did. I checked all the boxes, you know, and that's and I was okay with that. You know, I was kind of raised to do that. And this generation is different. They want to understand the reasoning behind it. They want to know why. They want, And they have so much more information. We didn't have the internet. Right. You know, we didn't have the millions of resources that are out there. And like one click, you can find anything and everything you've ever wanted or not wanted to see. So, and just siphoning through that to make sure the content we're getting is actually good content. It's accurate content. I did a podcast with Anthony Sweat a few years ago talking about this. Like the majority of what is out there is actually inaccurate. They're not first accounts. They didn't happen within hours of that experience happening. It's really interesting because so much of what we perceive as truth and reality, if we wait even like a day or two, it changes. Right. Our exact remembrance is different. So, I mean, and just think of all these accounts online, a lot of them aren't even first accounts, or even someone who was there, you know, and then people are reading them as fact, and, and really shaking their testimonies over it. it's kind of scary.
1: It is. And and and, and this is um, this is one area where historians can be helpful. Now, historians can't do everything. We can't cure cancer. Uh, I wouldn't get on an airplane that was built by historians. So, so you know, uh, I, I, I value all the other things that other people do. But this is one area where historians can help us in, in terms of the skills and methods that we have. In terms of assessing evidence of doing exactly what you were just talking about, how do we know that a source is reliable? How do we know uh, that this information can be trusted? Um, because we know that not every document, not everything created in the past, is is reliable, or or simply that um, uh, you know there can be qu- conflicting accounts of of the same event. Uh, now, just because something isn't written on the day that it happened doesn't mean that that account isn't useful. I mean, so take for instance Joseph Smith's accounts of the first vision we have four first hand accounts from Joseph Smith in which he talks about the first vision but the first one doesn't appear until 1832 12 years after the event some people have said oh well that that means he's making it up these are really late we shouldn't trust him because his memory has changed and he's saying saying you know these for different reasons and and I don't agree with that. And I think a lot of historians, most historians look at those four firsthand accounts, even though they're written many years later, and say, no, these are, these are trustworthy. And even though they differ in, in some details, we would kind of expect that as, as somebody tells a story many years later and to different audiences. But there's a kind of stable core to, to, to this experience that he's recounting that, that gives us trust and confidence uh, in, in what he's saying. Other times, you know, there there uh, there are different uh, things where where accounts are are written much later, or whether you have directly contradictory accounts of the same event, and we simply have to make judgments about what we trust. And so, history, uh, you know, this this is exactly what we do as historians. And so, we do point people to primary sources, to the sources that were created by the people who actually lived through the events. Uh, Generally speaking, the documents that are created closer to the event are going to be more reliable than those that are written many years after. But like I said, even that's complicated. And we try to to put together as many sources as possible to confirm an event, as many multiple and independent sources as possible. Um, But but sometimes, you know, history is more an art than a science and so, even really good historians will sometimes disagree, even when they're looking at the same set of documents or the same set of sources.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. You know you had a really important idea in your book that I wanted to talk about a little bit. Um, the difference between God communing with us versus God communicating with us, and many members struggle with the fact that they don't feel God communicating with them.
1: Yeah. I think this can be one of the hardest things for church members because we have this wonderful promise that when we're confirmed as members of the church, that we'll receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, and we talk about this being a, a constant companion. Uh, and uh, and each week when we um, when we partake of the sacrament, we promise that we'll always remember God, but then His in, in return that we'll have His Spirit to be with us always, and. So I think sometimes uh, people can um, can be confused and um, and and feel like there's something wrong with them when they're not constantly hearing God's voice. Uh, what does it mean to to get, have God's spirit with us always if I don't actually feel any inspiration? Does that mean there's something wrong with me? Mm-hmm. Um, that can lead to lots of self-doubt and perfectionism and scrupulosity and, and lots of things that, that can be really damaging. And I, th- I think one of the things to, to, to keep in mind and one of the things I, I talk about in the book is, is that um, there's no promise that God will be constantly communicating with us, that that, that Wi-Fi signal is you know, going to be constantly strong with, with information going back and forth uh, all the time. And we see that um, that wasn't true for prophets in the past. Uh, Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail cried out, you know, where are you, God? Um, You know, uh, I think he felt that sense of distance. Of course, the most profound example is Jesus on the cross where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mm -hmm. And, And so part of what it means to be on this side of the veil is to live by faith. And uh, that we're not going to have God constantly communicating with us. We're not going to have that constant download of information or those constant strokes uh, you know from from God. I tell the story in there uh, in, in in the book of Mother Teresa. You know I think that everybody agrees you know was was um, literally a, a a saint gave her life to serving the poor. And when she died uh, they, they published her diaries. And it turns out that she went decades without hearing God's voice. And you think, you know, here's somebody who literally gave her life um, to doing the work of Christ, to, to serving um, the poorest of the poor. And she she despaired sometimes at not hearing God's voice, but she never despaired over whether God was actually there she never gave up. She continued to, to, to move forward. And I think that's that's part of what, what it means to commune with God, to, to be with God, to, to be in this journey with God, even if we're not hearing that communication every day or even every week or every month, or sometimes some people go years without. I mean, that's a, it's a very lonely and dark place. Uh, but I think we have a lot of examples of people like Mother Teresa who are able to maintain their communion with God and their discipleship, even if they're not getting that constant communication.
0: Yeah, and I think that's what can be hard. Like you were saying at the baptism, you have the Holy Ghost to be with you always. And so you're like, okay, then why aren't I hearing that? <laughs> like, yeah, why, why isn't he talking to me? Why isn't he directing me? I don't feel like he's communicating with me. I feel cut off. I interviewed a woman a few months ago who wrote the book Divine Quietness. And she went through a real struggle with that where she just felt like God had cut her off. She's like, I just don't feel him there. I don't, like, I'm praying, I'm doing all the work, I'm checking all the boxes of, of how I can hear from him and I'm not hearing from him. Why isn't he talking to me? You know, and so I think maybe this is a good opportunity to like introduce the communing, you know? So communing is like Mother Teresa in action, living it, and maybe, which is shocking to me, I, I've heard that before about her. But I read again in your book how, if anyone should be communicating with God, it's that woman. Yeah, I mean, all she did for the poor is unreal. But that she just felt this disconnect. So, would you say she was communing with God? How, so clarify that a little bit more. Communing.
1: Yeah, I mean, communing means just to, just to be with, to be to be in community with, to to walk alongside, and. And of course, I'm so just taking her as an example, you know. When when Jesus in Matthew 25 says, you know, if if you've you know fed the hungry, if you've given water to the thirsty, if you've visited those in prison, uh, you know, inasmuch as you've done this to the least of these, you've done it unto me. So that's what she did. She communed with God every day when she was serving the poor. We do this when we serve our families. We do this when we serve in our communities, when we serve in our congregations, anytime we're doing these, these acts of Christian service, we're communing with God because we're walking alongside him when we walk alongside one another. Uh, when we live that, that second commandment is the way we live the first commandment to, to, to love God. And so, so that's what it means. You know, it's, that's why we, we talk about our word communities, right? We commune with one another. And, um, you know, that that doesn't mean that I'm talking to every member of my ward every day, right? Uh, or even when I go to Sunday, when I go to church on Sunday, I don't talk to to all 200 people who are there, but we're still in community together. We're communing together. We have a shared purpose. Uh, we're, we're there. We, we We want to get better together. And so I think there's a way that we can commune with God, even if there's not any you know, verbal uh, or mental communication. Now, hopefully we're talking to him. Uh, hopefully, you know, we're maintaining our prayers and, and doing our part. But I think also we can think about different ways that God does communicate with us or commune with us. When, when Paul talks about the gifts of the spirit, he doesn't talk about words. He talks about peace and joy and love uh, and, and those kinds of things. And so oftentimes it seems to me that God's communing with us happens in ways that that are not direct revelation in terms of words, uh, but but rather it's it's this sense of simply being in God's presence with the peace and jo- joy and love that, that that we can feel through all kinds of of things just in our daily walk.
0: That's true. It makes me think when you're saying that about like how i get impressions to text somebody or go see somebody or call somebody i think that's god communicating with us and sending us on his errand
1: yeah exactly um or it can be the other way around when when somebody serves us when we feel the love that that we have within a family that's a gift of the spirit mm-hmm. when we feel god's love in nature that's a gift of the spirit that's god communing with us uh, so it might not be words it 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 might not be you know the burning in the bosom that, that we sometimes talk about i I think we we sometimes narrow in in the way that we talk about it within the church, the way that we talk about inspiration and revelation, I think we talk about it in in a pretty narrow swatch of of what it actually is. I think God can communicate and commune with us in lots and lots of different ways, oftentimes that are highly individualized but maybe not in, in the ways that, that we just hear about and talk about over, over the pulpit.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, how can we stay anchored in kind of this wisdom and knowledge we already have and draw on the positive experience we've had when these doubts start to arise? or We feel like he's not there. Or we feel alone or we feel isolated from him. Because I think so many times we have had powerful experiences in our life, but we forget them. And it's easier to just focus on the disconnect than to focus and draw upon these other experiences that can kind of feed our, our testimony and our faith.
1: Yeah, it's such a good question. And, and that's why you know, one of the most common messages in Scripture, especially in the Book of Mormon, is to remember. Uh, to remember all the things that God has done for us. Uh, it's just a constant refrain from the prophets in the Book of Mormon. You remember even uh, Moroni's promise, uh, where he says, when, when, when you remember all the things that God has done for you, then you know I, I, I invite you to, to pray over these things and, and uh, ask if they're true. And so, so there's, there's something really powerful about keeping those experiences at the forefront of our mind and on our heart. Now that can be really hard to do, right? When when we're in the the midst of a trial, we're in the when we're in the midst of, of spiritual doldrums, uh, and 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 we should also talk about the ways that that there are lots of factors that are out of our control that affect um, our spirituality, Uh, mental health. Depression uh, can act. I've talked to so many people who who have uh, depression ranging from mild to severe. And they feel like that it acts like this big, heavy, wet blanket that, um, that kind of smothers their ability to, to, to feel God's, to hear God's voice, even to feel God's love. Mm-hmm. So I think we have to recognize that, um, that, and, and, and that there can be so many of these factors that, that are outside of our control, um. But as best we can, th- this is one of the reasons why I think that the prophets encourage us to journal. Um, there have been times in my life where I'm much better at journaling than I am right now, right? So uh, a physician, heal thyself. But, but I think journaling is a good way to do this. I think you know, this is why we testify regularly in, in our testimony meetings. I think this is one of the reasons why we go to church e- each week, is to not only remember God and remember Christ. I mean, this, so the sacrament is a weekly invitation to remember what Christ has done for us. But then we also go into our classes and we teach one another. We hear one another's stories. We share our stories. We read the stories in the scriptures. And all of these are ways that God is trying to help us remember his mercies towards us um, so that it can kind of break through whatever walls or clouds uh, we we, we have um, in in which, you know, these kind of veil of forgetfulness that, that we continually live within
0: hmm Yeah. I mean, I love the quote you had in your book from Elder Holland saying, hold fast to what you already know and stand strong until additional knowledge comes. Sometimes you just have to hold on to what you already know. I love the idea of journaling because I know when I've just struggled with certain things, I've gone back in my journals to times when I was super strong. And why was I strong? What was it I was doing during that time that helped me be so strong and so resilient? And that journal has, and in my own words, it's me talking right? and so powerful and helping me in my life.
1: Yeah. And so, and and I think we also just need to give ourselves and give other people some grace to recognize that, you know, life is going to be full of ups and downs. I think that's, that's just part of the life of faith. Um, there, there'll be times where we are really feeling communion with God. We feel that really strongly where we get a lot of communication there are other times where it's going to be more fallow, and and I think our faith life is 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 very organic in that way, and and uh, we can't always predict it, we can't always force it, and we can't always even explain it. Um, I can't explain why there are times in my life where um, I've felt God's presence more powerfully or not powerfully, even when on the surface it looks like I'm doing the same kinds of things. So it's. It's not a kind of vending machine religion where we just put some quarters in and get some stuff out. It's it's a little bit more mysterious than that. Again, faith is, to, to, to walk by faith is to not always be working according to a formula. Uh, and so these spiritual disciplines that we have of, of reading, of praying, of pondering, of, of going to church, of serving one another, um, all of these things, what they do is they they, they maximize our opportunities and put us in the place where we're most likely to encounter God. But they're also the places that can sustain us, even in those times where our faith is a little bit more fallow.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I want to switch gears a little bit here. I did a podcast a few weeks ago with Scott Woodward, who works mm-hmm. at BYU, you probably know him, yeah. BYU, Idaho, where he talks about prophetic infallibility. You know, I think we put these church leaders on a pedestal that they are perfect and they're not. I mean, even the prophets themselves will say, we are not perfect. Right. You know, we are not infallible. Um, and we place a lot of emphasis on prophets being perfect, but they are not infallible. Um, And I like in your book, you were talking about how God points us to prophets and the church, not because... They can save or redeem us, but because they are the temporal means by which He orients us to our Savior and Redeemer. Let's talk about that.
1: Yeah, I have, I have a friend who, who told me the story once. Uh, he he said uh, he he had a dog uh, who was was maybe not the the, the brightest dog in the world. Um, and and you know he he'd throw a ball or something like that, and, and then my friend would point at the ball. Uh And the dog would just stare at his finger <laughs> rather <Yeah. laughs> rather than at the ball or wherever he was pointing to, and I think sometimes we're like that the, the you know the prophets are are the finger that they're pointing us to something else, uh, but I think sometimes we just stare at the finger rather than looking at where the finger is pointing, yeah and um. It's it's absolutely true. Our, our our prophets and apostles are they're not infallible. They're human beings, as you say. They're the first person to say that, and we can compile quote after quote after quote of of the prophets saying that very that that very thing. Whether it be the prophets of this dispensation or prophets throughout Scripture, uh, we just have multiple multiple testimonies of them saying, "Hey, we're we're just humans." uh, God has called us to this. We're doing the best we can. We're as faithful as we can be to this calling, but ultimately we're here to point you to God. In fact, I love what, what Moroni says, um, in, at at the end of the book of, of Mormon, um, where, where he says, you know, forgive me and and my father of our weaknesses, our imperfections. And, and we've written all this so that you can be better than us. Uh, so that you can learn from our mistakes and and be better than us. I mean, I love that that humility. And so, yeah, prophets aren't infallible, but they are invaluable. They are part of the means by which God is ordained to to point us on the path, to to, to point us back to Him. And so, um, so I don't you know worship the prophets. Again, I am not a member of the Church of Joseph Smith, uh, but I am so grateful that that God has called imperfect people. Uh, revealed truths through them, uh, and um, and they point us towards towards Christ uh, the best way that they can. And and over time, they'll they'll slip and they'll stumble. Sometimes they'll they'll get it wrong. Sometimes really wrong. We can point to to, to experiences in Scripture and in church history, uh, you know, where where, where 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 you know people have gotten hurt and 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 and, and bad things have happened. Um, but again, the consistent testimony over the years is that they point us to, to Christ who redeems all things, including the prophets themselves.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we can acknowledge human error without giving yeah. up on our basic beliefs and the truthfulness of the gospel. We don't need to let that shake us.
1: Yeah, if, if anything, uh, why would we expect any different? Um, it's the, the, There's a way in which we can create false idols or golden calves out of, out of our prophets. And that's not what they're meant to. Again, we're, we're not supposed to look to them. We're supposed to look with them, uh, to, to, to Christ. And, and we believe in a gospel of, of eternal progression. Uh, you know, one of my friends and, uh, and colleagues, Paul Reeve, he's, he's a great historian of, of the church, especially of, of race within the church. He says, look, I mean, you know, he he always says. You know, Brigham Young says said a lot of hard things, a, a, a lot of things that uh, um, uh, that we wouldn't agree with today, and and created policies that that were harmful for a long time uh, to our African American sisters and brothers. But he says he says we believe in a gospel of e- e- eternal progression, and uh, let's not pretend that Brigham Young is sitting up in heaven believing and saying the same things that he said 200 years ago. Right? Let's let's give him room to grow. Let's give him room to to progress just like we hope is is true for for each of us. And so so the prophets, um, again, they have this weighty calling. It's I, I would not want to to trade places with them. This weighty calling. And um and they do it marvelously, uh, but not perfectly. And we shouldn't hold them to that unrealistic burden of perfection.
0: Totally. Well, I've loved our conversation today. I think your book is really productive. I think it helps people figure out how they can stay planted in the gospel of Jesus Christ when they discover these things in the culture and history that can be confusing and generate doubt. But also, it's a good resource and tool for those of us who are firmly planted and want to support those who have maybe moved away from the church. So um, if you're looking for a good book to help you in this this um, topic, please Go find Planted. You can find it wherever you buy books, right? Amazon and whatever. Yep, platform. and Desiree Book. Desiree Book, and, yeah. okay. Um, is there anything else you'd like to close with?
1: No, this is great. I appreciate the conversation. And and I'm, I'm just so glad that we're at a place now in the church where we can talk a little bit more honestly and openly about the very real struggles that, that people have. Because I think the more that we can just support each other in our journey, Uh, the better we're off. Our families are going to be, our wards are going to be, and and the stronger the church is going to be.
0: Amen. (laughs) Thank you so much.
1: Thanks, Mary Alice.
0: Thanks. Thank you for listening to the What Now podcast. Please share this episode with family, friends, and anyone you think it might help. Just click on that share button wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're on Instagram, follow us at Podcast what Now for inspirational messages and highlights from our past and present episodes. We never say goodbye. We say what now? This has been a What Now podcast production.